So this week is one of my favorite times of the year. I love Thanksgiving. Is anyone else super pumped about Thanksgiving? Thank you. I'm not alone. I love Thanksgiving for so many reasons. One, it's in the fall, so it's a little bit cooler, and I love the changing season and the fall's changing color. Uh, it's a little bit cooler right now than is good for my taste, but it's okay. Uh, I love Thanksgiving because Macy's hosts the Thanksgiving Day Parade, and I love watching my little girls uh, and their excitement over it when they see the floats and the dancing and, and the fun that they have there. Uh, I love that we get to sit around and share how God has been good and all the things that have been a blessing to us over the past year. Sometimes I even get to sleep in, which is great. But the thing I feel that I love Thanksgiving the most about, I mean, why I absolutely love Thanksgiving and and I apologize if I'm coming across super shallow right now, is because of the Thanksgiving meal. Am I, I mean, are you with me? Right? I mean, I'm already starting to get hungry just thinking about it, and my mouth is starting to water, so if I start drooling uncontrollably in the next minute or two, I apologize. But I'm envisioning our Thanksgiving meal, and it is just phenomenal. I mean, you have appetizers that start with blueberry encrusted goat cheese with brie and sharp cheddar and crackers and tortilla chips with salsa-covered cream cheese and pita and hummus and a veggie platter with ranch dressing. And that's followed by this incredible spread of moist and buttery turkey and savory sweet honey-baked ham, along with sweet potato casserole with brown sugar and, and pecans and apricots and covered with toasted marshmallows. And we also have fried green beans with bacon and garlic and twice-baked mashed potatoes with chives and paprika on the top. And you have savory stuffing and you have pickles and olives and cranberry dressing and buttery rolls. I mean, it is incredible. And it's followed ultimately by dessert probably about an hour later when we can find some margin in our stomachs to actually squeeze some more in. Desserts of pecan and apple, cherry, and pumpkin pie. I mean, whoo! Incredible, right? I mean, I feel like Voltaire in this moment. Voltaire said that, uh, let me give you his quote. He said, nothing would be more than eating and drinking if God had not made them as a pleasure as well as a necessity. I mean, this week is going to be pleasure eating at its finest. But imagine if I came and I sat down at that meal by myself. No one at the table to share it with. Wouldn't you find that a little bit odd? I would think that no matter how incredible all of that food is, I think that there would be an immeasurably amount of joy and enjoyment that would be lost in missing. You see, there's something built into each of those moments that is a necessity that we share a meal like this with others. There's something that pulls us to sharing meals and food together. There's something built in the nature. I feel like it's, it's that case that God has built inside the DNA of each and every one of us this desire to eat meals together, to share. Why? Well, there's a lot of things that happen when we share a meal together. Defenses are lowered. Bonds are formed. Relationship is created. Community is nurtured. And hunger is satisfied. 
There's so many things that take place when we share a meal together. So it shouldn't be surprising to us then that if you go through the Bible, you'll discover that there is food talked about all over the place. In fact, the very first words that were spoken by God to men, mankind, were instructions on what to or not to eat. The first conflict that we see in the Bible was over a forbidden meal. One of the most memorable moments in Jesus' ministry was the meal he shared before his death with his disciples. In fact, the last picture we see in the Bible is of a great feast that we all get to share with God at the end of time. Feasting, food, eating is so important and it's mentioned all throughout the Bible. Relationships were formed and affirmed in the Bible over meals. Treaties were sealed over meals. A birthright was sold over a meal. The prophets, all that they could picture was this great meal that God had planned for them in fulfillment of his promise to, to them. The great exodus, the deliverance of the people from bondage of slavery was preceded by a meal. When we get to Jesus' ministry, food is a big part of his ministry. In fact, the very first thing that Jesus does in his ministry, he has this, this catering crisis where he has to change this ceremonial water into wine. And it's the best wine that people have ever tasted. Some of his greatest miracles center around food, like feeding thousands of people with a simple boy's lunch. Jesus, as I mentioned, shared his most intimate meals with his disciples in the Last Supper before his death, but then afterwards, cooking breakfast with his disciples on the beach or breaking bread with a few of them in the little town of Emmaus. And then we get to the end and we see John displaying this massive joy-filled banquet at the end of time. Eating and food is mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible. And all of it is for the purpose that I mentioned before, because around meals you have our defenses lowered, relationships are formed, bonds are created, community is nurtured, hunger is satisfied. But it's also a place where family ties are strengthened, where peace is brought into confusing situations, where a bridge is formed between strangers, where hostility is reduced. And that's why God put eating and food in the Bible because it's so powerful. It's a representation of so much more. In fact, what it shows to us, why it's there, is that there's meaning beyond the meal. It's not just food. We're not just consuming food. There's something greater. There's something more beyond the food that we eat. And that's what God wants to show us through his word. As I mentioned before, all these things take place when we center around food. And that's because from the very beginning of time, God has had a plan before time started, he came up with this plan, put it into place, and his plan was to have fellowship with his people. That was his plan. The fulfillment of his plan is to have fellowship with his new creation, the people that he has both created and saved. And every moment, every meal in between the beginning and the end is meant to point to that goal. So then every meal, every feast, 
that is mentioned in the Bible is looking forward to the, the time one day when all of it is fulfilled in God's presence. When we will have everything satisfied that we are longing for. This relationship with God. And God pictures it like a great feast. Why? He wants to invite us in to this, the biggest, most extravagant feast you have ever imagined. That's what fellowship with God is pictured like. A great feast where relationship with him is expressed together. So everything that we have now on earth is something that points to that day. It's a reminder for us that God's desire is for us to be in relationship with him, to find belonging with him, to be satisfied by him. In fact, if I could say it in a much simpler way, it would simply be this. Feasting with God brings satisfaction for our souls. Feasting with God brings satisfaction for our souls. Now, there are many meals in the Bible that I could go to. I'm sure that you are familiar with quite a few of them. So we could go to any one of them, but I feel the meal that captures this understanding of how meals point beyond to what God wants to accomplish in us and through us is the Last Supper, the time that Jesus spent with his disciples. Luke captures it really well, and I would love to read his account of it. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20 says this. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Incredible things Jesus says. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for this moment. We can open your word. I pray that you direct our thoughts to you. Help us to see you shining through and understand your heart to be in relationship with us. Guide our thoughts. Keep us concentrated on your message in your word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to understand what Jesus is really getting across here, and what this meal really signifies, you have to go back to the very beginning. You have to go to where it all began, and that's the beginning of the feast. The beginning of the feast. It starts way back at the beginning of time. So before time even started, God composed a plan, and he put that plan in place to create a beautiful and perfect world. And he did that. He created the heavens and the earth. And he created everything on the earth. And then he created a human being, a man, out of the dust of the earth. And then he created a companion, a female companion, for that man out of his rib. And then he placed him in a specific location. It says he placed him in Eden, but not just in Eden, in a garden in Eden. But not just a garden. It's actually an orchard in Eden. And that's where he placed them. And the picture that we have is absolutely incredible. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put 
the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The next verse. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God put them in this perfect location. Can you imagine it? God created this perfect orchard where everything was perfect. The environment was perfect. The weather was perfect. The growing conditions for the trees were perfect. It produced perfect trees, which produced perfect fruit for perfect people who walked and talked and ate with a perfect God. Wow, I mean, that is an amazing scene, isn't it? When you think about it, perfection at its finest. I love fruit, and I love seeing fruit trees with perfect fruit on it. Can you imagine if it never got rotten and you can eat it at any time? And it was just, oh, my mouth's starting to water again. I should move on. But as beautiful and as wonderful as this picture is, that's not the scene. That's not what God says is important. It's not about the trees. It's not about the perfection that's there. What he wants us to capture is that he wanted to have fellowship with the creation. He wanted to have fellowship with people. That's why he created that place. The whole purpose was to be with them in relationship with him. To feast together in perfection. And he gave them just one requirement. Hey, you can eat anything from any tree in this entire place. Just don't eat this one. This one tree in the middle. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't do it. Now, on a side note, I don't believe that God just did this as a test. He's not putting a mousetrap in the middle of the garden, kind of like a knife put on a table of your kid's playroom and saying, don't play with the knife, kids, right? It doesn't work well. I don't think that God's intention was to put a big test. I feel like he had a greater purpose for that tree at some other point in time. But for right now, something happens. And like what happens at many of our meals, we gather people together, someone doesn't follow the rules, And in this case, Adam and Eve didn't follow the rules. And we have conflict. And conflict erupts at the table with God. The snake enters the picture. And he goes to Eve and he he gathers a little bit of truth and throws it in with a bunch of lies. And he deceives Eve into taking part of this fruit. Seeing this incredible, luscious, voluptuous fruit, she grabs it and eats it along with her husband, Adam. They ate without permission or the permission from the wrong person, the snake. They ate it at the wrong time, not according to God's plan. And they ate it with disastrous consequences, shame and alienation from God. Their seat at the table of God's feast was taken away. They were taken out of the garden. They were ejected, rejected. And from that one moment, that one thoughtless act from Adam and Eve, they sent the entire human race into this course of sin and pain and disease and death, decay, disaster, destruction. And since that time, All of us, each and every one of us, have been trying to get back to that table. There's something within us that says, I've got to get back there. I'm missing something. I need that seat at the table. I need that fellowship with God. But each of us are are further further distancing ourselves from it by the things that we do. We're born with us in nature, first of all, setting us apart, taking us away from the table. And the things that we do push us further away. 
But there's something inside that we can't escape that's drawing us back in. I remember when I was growing up, I uh, was homeschooled all the way up until high school. When high school came along, I had this deep yearning to be at a school. At a school with some friends, to have uh, other friends than the sheeps and the, the horses that we had on our campground. I didn't have a whole lot of friends, and I needed some more, and I wanted also to be able to participate in sports. So uh, I started going to high school. And I started getting connected with the worst kind of people there at the high school. And as a result of that, I made some very poor choices that led to me being expelled during my junior year of high school. As I was leaving, it was so hurtful to me because I wanted to be there. I wanted to be there with my friends. And even as I was away, I couldn't wait to get back to school because I missed that but I had ruined my opportunity to be there because of my actions. But there was this deep longing to be back at school. Each of us has this longing to be back at the seat of God's table, of God's feast, to worship with him, to have fellowship with him. So what you'll see from that moment to the end of the Bible, you'll see God's rescue plan to make that happen. You'll see him working things out inside of his plan to bring people back into relationship with him, to bring them back to the table. And one of the ways that he does that, he's going to illustrate it before he actually does it in a phenomenal way. And of course, it would center around a meal. So conflict at the table, we go for quite some time down the line, God takes one individual on the face of the earth, says, I'm going to create a nation out of you, and I'm going to bless the world through that nation by bringing the Redeemer, the Savior, through him. And as that nation starts to grow and, and, and the family is growing, famine erupts in the land, and they have to go down to the land of Egypt to find food. There's no food for them in their home. They go down to Egypt. They find food through miraculous circumstances. God preserves them, and they get comfortable, and they stay there. And they stay there for 400 years. And this family of 70 people that came down to Egypt 400 years later is now nearly 2 million people. And the pharaoh of Egypt is like, I don't know what's happening here, but these people can rise up and overthrow our government, our our nation. So we enslave them all, force them into hard labor. And so for the next decade and more, just cry after cry after cry, God, save us, redeem us, bring us back home. And so God does. He raises up a man named Moses, a man who got all the training in the court of Pharaoh. He got the training in God's university in the wilderness and was brought back and was raised up to be the deliverer of Israel. He goes before the Pharaoh and he says, God commands you to let all those people go. And the reason behind it is really important. The reason is God wants to worship with his people. God wants to have fellowship with his people. So you have to let them go. You have to release them so they can worship God. And Pharaoh's like, I'm not letting them go. That's my whole workforce. I got things to accomplish. I'm not letting them go. So Moses says, well, you're going to experience God's power. And God set about to do a series of plagues both to harden Pharaoh's heart, but also display his great power to save. Nine of those plagues resulted in great pain and suffering in the land of Egypt, but it didn't result in their being delivered. The tenth one would. And how God sets it up 
is around a meal. He gathers the people of Israel, says, tonight is the night you're going to be delivered. Now, in order for you to be delivered, here's what's going to happen. We're going to have a meal together, and here's how you have to eat the meal. And Jesus is going to push beyond the Passover, or or God is going to paint us a picture, sorry, of this Passover and how incredible it's going to be. So he says, I want you to gather this lamb together. You're going to have that lamb with you for four days. On the fourth day, you're going to kill that lamb. You're going to spread some of its blood on the doorposts, and then you're going to eat this meal together in a specific way. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 12. Here's how you should eat it. Do we have those verses? Exodus 12. Oh, we don't. Yes. You are to eat the meat roasted in the fire that night along with bread made without yeast and bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water. Make sure it's roasted. And here's also how you're supposed to eat it. And here's how you're to eat it. Be fully dressed with your sandals on and your stick in your hand. Eat in a hurry. Why? It's the Passover to God. So God is setting up this incredible meal. What he's going to do is he's going to go through the whole land of Egypt. The angel of death is going to be unleashed. And the angel is going to go through the entire land. And if there's any houses that do not have the blood of that lamb on the doorposts, that angel will kill the firstborn male son and the firstborn male animal in that house, in the entire land. But if the angel comes to a house where he sees the blood on the doorpost, it says the angel will pass over that house. That's where we get the word Passover. And that's why the people of Israel celebrate that meal till today. Because they are experiencing something incredible. That God passed over destruction, destroying them, and gave them freedom, and delivered them out of bondage from Egypt. And God is going to paint a picture through that because it's enormously obvious for us to see, oh, that makes perfect sense. I see it. I see it. Like Jesus died. Jesus dies. And because we trust in Jesus, his blood covers us and cleanses us from our sin. So God passes over us and he doesn't judge us. He judges the lamb in our place. It points to Jesus, but it It wasn't enormously obvious for them as it is for us today. But this meal, this Passover, was what Jesus was experiencing with his disciples at this moment. That meal that we talked about at the beginning, the Passover meal, the communion, the Lord's table, the Last Supper, that's what they were celebrating. So God paints a picture of his deliverance through the Passover, but Jesus is going to push beyond the Passover. He's going to push beyond it to show the real meaning. This shared meal wasn't just an accident. He wasn't coming up and saying, oh, I should probably take advantage of this meal. No, he had planned this out. He orchestrated all the events to be in Jerusalem at this very moment. And he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. That was his plan from the start. And he says, I'm not going to eat it again until I'm in the presence of heaven, of God, with you at the feast. And then he institutes the Lord's table and he redefines and repurposes everything about it. No longer is the broken bread referring to the broken lives in Egypt. He's talking about his own body that is broken for us. No longer is he talking about the wine representing the blood that was shed by the people there in Egypt, but the blood shed by Jesus. And I love how Paula Gooder, theologian, Paula says this, 
The Last Supper reminds us that God is once more leading his people out of slavery and into freedom. A freedom that is achieved this time, not by the death of the firstborn sons of others, but by the death of his own most beloved son. This entire meal is not, no longer just looking back to the time that God delivered the nation of Israel from bondage in Egypt, but now forward to the time that Jesus would deliver all of us who believe in him from our sin. But it goes further than this. Just as the Passover found its fulfillment in the Lord's table, communion, communion now finds its fulfillment at the final great feast at the end of time with Jesus as his followers. Paula Gooder goes on to say this in her quote, every time we commemorate the Last Supper, we look backwards to Jesus' death and forward to the messianic banquet. And that action of remembering, of making present what is past and what is to come, transforms the present. It transforms the present because it is a constant reminder of God's purpose plan to be in relationship with his people. It's a constant reminder that God absorbed all of the sin and wrath, forgiving all of that from now and all time in the death of Christ. It is a constant reminder that God desires to share a meal, a feast with us, and form a bridge between strangers a place where hostility is completely removed and peace is all-encompassing. And that is what the church celebrates today. Every time that we gather together and we celebrate communion together, we are displaying being gathered at God's table. Jesus instituted this. Paul went back and said, I received to you what I also received from the Lord. This is my instruction. What Jesus instituted as something lasting for us, but it's more than it's pointing us beyond this meal. We're not just celebrating communion together. We're displaying that Jesus has won for us home at heaven, freedom and forgiveness of our sin. He has worked it all through for us. So every time we gather together, we are gathering and displaying the work of Christ on our behalf. But it goes even more than that. When we share any meal together, it does the same thing. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says that the constant practice of the believers is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. The shared meal gathered together so many different kinds of people. You had men and women, slaves and free people, Jews and Gentiles. You had the religious elite and you had the social elite, but you also had the social downcast. You had the lawmakers and the lawbreakers, and they were all together at the same table. People that shouldn't have anything to do with each other are all gathered at the same table rejoicing in what God has done. And all this does is it points us for, forward to the day that we will be at the feast with God because it says in Revelation that John is picturing the feast day where people are gathered, a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to worship Jesus, who is worthy because he was slain and his blood has ransomed and redeemed 
all of the people who believe in his name. And John pictures this event like this. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. The feast is here. And what the most amazing thing about this is, you are invited to that feast. You are invited to this great feast. Picturing this, the prophet Isaiah records for us in Isaiah 55, this invitation, come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. All things are ready. The guests are invited and nothing is required except to come. Isaiah gives us three invitations here to come. The first one he says, come to the waters. Come and have your thirst satisfied. It's talking about this life-threatening situation where you desperately need water, but you have come to an endless supply of abundant waters. The second invitation says, come buy and eat. Well, how can I buy and eat? I have no money. Well, it's extended to all of us who have no money for this one reason, because the price has already been paid. Jesus has already paid the price for our invitation to the banquet. And then the last thing is the invitation to come buy wine and milk without money. Richness of provision, luxurious satisfaction. Isaiah saying, come, come to this banquet. The siege of sin and suffering is lifted. The doors, the gates of plenty are wide open. So why spend your money on junk food? Why waste your life on vain ambitions? Are you thirsty? Are you longing to be satisfied knowing that nothing in this world can satisfy or quench your thirst? Come to the feast. Are you hungry, hungry for longing and and belonging, knowing that nothing in this world has ever given that to you? Come to the feast. Are you penniless and without merit? You have nothing to offer to God. It's okay. The price has been paid. Come to the feast. Are you longing and craving for life, for love, for fulfillment, for faithfulness, for belonging, for God? Come to the feast Isaiah says, because feasting with God brings satisfaction for our souls. Feasting with God brings satisfaction 
for our souls. Starting this week and stretching probably all the way till Christmas, we are going to be gathering together with so many friends and family, having many opportunities to participate in meals. And during those meal times, we are going to run the gamut of human emotion and experience. As Australian pastor Rory Shiner says, we'll experience perhaps more than at any other time in the year the way in which feasts and food focus the full range of human experience. Joy and fellowship, awkwardness and conflict, hope and longing, loneliness and sorrow, fullness and regret. We'll get to experience firsthand the miracle of appetites that, contrary to what our parents told us, cannot be ruined. We will find ourselves being drawn back to the table time and time again. But beyond the delight in all these meals, may we find ourselves looking beyond the meal to the meaning beyond the meal. I hope that at each time that we come to a meal, that we're reminded to do three things, or one of three things. One, respond to the invitation to God's feast. If you are here and you have never responded, you've never reached out in faith, you've never come to the place to say, God, I am far from you, but I long to be back at your table Thank you for paying the purchase price, for giving me from all of my sin on the cross and rising from the dead to give me eternal life. Then God is calling out to you like he did to the church at Laodicea. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, open the door. I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. You'll find feasting with God satisfies your soul. If you already have a relationship with God, maybe at a mealtime, you need to remember God when you eat. Remember God when you eat. Remembering that everything that you have before you is a gift from him. The giver of all good gifts also gives us feasts and food to celebrate. We're not coming together just to celebrate food, but to celebrate and remember God Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3, people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their label for these are gifts from God. And even more emphatically in chapter 9, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Whenever you enjoy these gifts of food and friendship and feasts, we should be drawn to an overflowing heart of thankfulness to the God who has provided them, knowing that feasting with God satisfies our souls. Last thing is this, to rejoice in our relationship with God. Rejoice in the fact that while food brings us joy in this moment, it will not last forever, but God does. His beckoning for us into the feast reminds us that there is lasting joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction in him. That not only are we wanted or invited to the feast, but we are welcome to the feast. And not just welcome to the feast, but we are wanted at the feast. Food reminds us that God wants to be in relationship with us. That he wants us to find belonging and satisfaction and purpose in him. He wants us to discover that feasting brings satisfaction to our souls. So as the psalmist says, what can I offer the Lord for all he has done for me. What can I offer to him? I will lift up the cup of salvation and praise his name for saving me. Will you stand together with us as we praise his name for his great work?